And the outlook for Tuesday, partly sunny, highs in the low to mid-60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg here in the studio with Dan Torres. Bill Newman has the day off. Hello, Dan. Hey, Buzz. How was uh, your weekend? Well, my weekend was fantastic. We had the Ashfield Film Festival. It was the 15th annual film festival. I was privileged to uh, to moderate a... Uh, uh, an event on Friday where there are two films shown, one about the poet Ruth Stone and one about the incredible singer uh, from Charlemont, Alice Parker. Alice is now 97 and led us in song. She's about to turn 98 on December Wow. 15th, I know. She, she stood up 98 there. years young. Exactly. And she, I mean, sometimes we, we, you know, we flippantly use those terms, but... She stood in front of us and led us and conducted us at age almost 98 in such a youthful and uh, vibrant way. We were just thrilled. So I had a great time. And then I moderated a panel with the poets, uh, Abbott Cutler, and, um, and uh, also the poet, Jan Freeman, and that was wonderful. But today is uh, Yom Kippur for those mm. listeners who are celebrants of uh, what many, if not most, uh, Jewish people believe is the holiest day of the year. Uh, we say good shantof, which is a way of saying happy holiday. In Hebrew, I am um, fasting, which is what we are called upon to do. And even though I don't attend synagogue anymore, I'm one of those uh, people who um, tries to be spiritual and tries to recognize the uh, importance of uh, being reverent in many ways, I don't um, do that in an organized religion way, but I nevertheless try to fast every Yom Kippur as our uh, uh, as Jews have been doing for thousands of years. And uh, it's a time of reflection, self-reflection. It's a time, we call it the Day of Atonement. It's a time to um, look over your last year, um, think um, in a reflective way about it, and try to figure out uh, what you can do better uh, try to atone for those mistakes that you've made and try to avoid making them in the next year. Uh, forgive not only others for um, what you feel are their trespasses, but also forgive yourself for uh, after a, a careful reflection. So that's... Excuse my ignorance, Buzz, but I have a question. Is this a, a one-day holiday of, of reflection or is it multiple days? That's a great question. Um, and uh, there's nothing ignorant about that. It, there are 10 days, we call them the 10 days of awe, um, they begin with Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year under the lunar calendar that Jews have been using for, what, 5,800 years or something. I always lose track of the year. Um, and uh, it, it, then there's 10, there's 10 days until this day, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is really a one-day holiday within the context of that, those 10 days uh, of the beginning of the new year. And um, it begins at sundown the night before, and it ends uh, sundown uh, today. So that's it. So um, meanwhile, happy happy holiday to everybody. Um, and uh, I'd like to turn our attention away from Yom Kippur and uh, uh, to the 
Mayor's Monday guest of this Monday, which is uh, the Mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedergartner. Hello, Roxanne. Hello there. How are you? I'm good. I'm a little hungry because I'm fasting, but other than that, I am good. Drink lots of water. I'm actually, yeah. I'm sort of cheating a little bit. I'm having coffee just uh, so, I guess it's mostly water. <laughs> so I am fine. So, Mayor, uh, there's, tell me, what is, uh, what is new in Greenfield? Well, um, let me think. <laughs> <laughs> you have a, a um, uh, contest happening. You, were, um, you took the oath as mayor, I think, in 2020, and uh, yes, you are running for re-election. I think you were, you were the third mayor of Greenfield since the 2002 city charter became law, right? I am the third mayor, yes. And you are running for re-election against, uh, I think, Precinct 3, uh, Councillor uh, Virginia, who calls herself Ginny DeSorger, and there is going to be a debate on the 3rd of October, and um, I am very fortunate that I'm going to have the best seat in the House as the moderator of that debate. So um, you are you yes, looking you, are you looking forward to that debate? I am, and I believe she's running against me. What did I say that? Did I not say that? <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, <laughs> she is I'm, running against you. I'm looking very much looking forward to it. Thank you. It's um, you guys have done a good job putting it together, and I appreciate that. I will point out that you guys are the uh, the executive editor <laughs> I, I, of yeah. of the I, Recorder. Yeah. Um, Dan Crowley, uh, Otis Wheeler, of, he is the director of the uh, GCTV, which will be broadcasting the debate and will be the site of the debate. And, um, and also GCC will be hosting a candidate's night, um, I think on the 24th, but later in October. And GCC is one of the co-sponsors of the debate. So it's, and the League of Women Voters, of course, with Gene Sherdak has been one of it. But... Um, does, I, I, I want to be careful here to make sure that I maintain my neutrality at the same time asking a question which I really do find interesting. I've moderated a number of political debates. Uh, when you say you're looking forward to it, it what is the opportunity and, and, and how do you take advantage of the opportunity when you have the platform and people are watching you talk about why you should be mayor? Ah. Well, that's a good question. Um, and because I'm not privy to what the questions are going to be going forward, I have to be completely ready for, I guess, almost anything that comes forward. Um, so I um, am very proud of my record, and I'm proud of the many things that I've gotten done, and I believe that I have uh, shown the people of Greenfield that I can face up to the challenges of governing, and um, and I get results. So I have a good story to tell, and, and I'm ready to tell it um, on, on that Wednesday or at any other point in time. <laughs> right. So uh, you will have the opportunity to make an opening and closing um, statement at that time. Is that a difficult thing to do to try to summarize everything you want to say in just a few minutes? Well, it is, um, as I said, because there's a lot. There's a lot to say. I would say the opening statement 
is probably the more difficult one because I do believe that is where you have to kind of succinctly um, explain your reasons for for running for mayor. So um, I worked on that over the weekend, and I worked on the closing statement as well. The closing statement is a little easier, although I'm not sure why. It's just shorter, so (laughs) I'm not tempted to be so so wordy, I guess. Um, So uh, that's, you know, the way I approach it. And then whatever happens in between is what happens in between. So, go. and I go ahead, Dan. I, and Mayor, this is Dan. Um, I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the schools in Greenfield. I assume that's going to be a topic that's going to be debated and discussed quite a bit. Um, can you just talk about the state of Greenfield schools in terms of funding? Um, there's also, you know, since COVID, there's been a lot of turnover. There's been a lot of changes. A lot of people have been leaving, which isn't unique to Greenfield. I think it's happening throughout the country. And uh, certainly Greenfield isn't exempt from all of the the changes that are happening in schools. It's a great question, Dan. I just want to point out, have the mayor point out that uh, her role, uh, according to the charter, in and your past history with the Greenfield School Committee. Can you tell us about that before you answer Dan's question? Well, right. So as a result of the charter, the mayor is a full member of the school committee with all of the rights as an, of an elected member of the school committee. Um, so I, I take part in every school committee meeting that I am able to attend, to attend which has been most of them for the last three years. So uh, I've missed one or two while on vacation or when I had to be in some somewhere else in, in another capacity. Well, my capacity as mayor, but on another, <laughs> in another what, place or, or time. And you were also a member of the school committee before you were mayor. I was. I, in the mid to late 90s, I served, a two, I was elected to two, three-year terms, and my kids were in school then, mostly Kirsten, our daughter. Uh, Ian had uh, graduated a, a little, uh, a few years before that I came on and uh, was at GCC and then on to UMass and then on to Emerson. <laughs> so as to Dan's questions about the state of the schools yeah. right now. Yeah. So I was on the committee. I was chair uh, back then for three of the six years I was there. As for the schools now, you know, they've opened up. They appear to be running relatively smoothly. Um, uh, they we received a budget update uh, at the last meeting, so the uh, August meeting, and we have another meeting coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, the uh, school is working with their uh, existing budget, and I would like to point out that other than the positions that had to be cut in order to make that school budget balance. And those are decisions that are made at the administrative level. They are not fully made at the, at the school committee level. So um, that's all I was going to say about that. But anyway, no one has been laid off as a result of that budget other than, as I say, the, the planned cut in order to make the budget balance. I suppose the one that I was more concerned about than any uh, well, I'm concerned about all of them, but I was mostly concerned about the fact that the middle school Spanish teacher had to be had to be let go, and, um, and it's partly some of that's partly due to low enrollment, 
uh, in in that particular class, um, and, and, and I think there's been a change in how they're doing the foreign language, doing foreign language at the middle school, and at the middle school level. And I would I would like to have that perhaps uh, discussed again for the 2024 budget and see if we can't figure out a way to. Um, both bring back foreign language in the middle school, but also enjoy it. You know, get people to be excited about it. Get students to be excited about it. Yeah, and and, so, and Mayor, can you just touch on the issue of how much of the school budget is of the total budget? Is it fifty percent of the city's budget that goes to schools? Can you give us the exact figure again on that? Great, thank you. I was about ready to do that. It is over sixty percent of the budget, and so that is. When you combine the school's operational budget, which is, I honestly have forgotten the exact amount by the time the city council cut all the other departments in town and, and gave the money to the school department, so I don't know the exact amount um, of the operating side, but the city then, out of the city's operating budget, pays all of the fringe benefits for every member every employee of the school department. So the administrative staff, the teaching staff, and, um, and others. So, so I, I heard correctly. Did you say 60%, 60? Six zero. Six zero. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that's a very large chunk of any city's budget. So um, It is. Um, I'd also like to point out, if I may, with regard to school funding, that, um, and this is all information that can be found on the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education website with the state, uh, the city of Greenfield consistently, in the last decade at least, has uh, significantly funded well above what our minimum required funding is. Uh, in Greenfield, so to the tune of about four to five million dollars a year, above what we are required by the state to put in, and we do that because we value education here in Greenfield. I wish we could do more, but um, you know everything is only that much more expensive right now. So the Greenfield superintendent of schools is Christine DeBarge, um, yep. Dr. DeBarge. And um, so how frequently do you talk to her about what's happening in the school as a school committee member and as a mayor of Greenfield? Well, let me just say this. I'm not sure if you're aware that Dr. DeBarge will be leaving at the end of, of, uh, the, of this school year. So next June. And um, she's retiring. So we are in the middle of a superintendent search, or about to begin one, let me put it that way. Um, so that's an interesting aspect that will come up here in the next few months. It certainly is. You, you'll, you'll be joining, what, East Hampton, Amherst. It, it, it's all the rage <laughs> yeah. searching for, uh, and uh, these are national searches, aren't they? They are. They are. Yes, they most definitely are. But anyway, I talked to... Um, I talked to Dr. DeBarge. She insists that we call her Christine. So if I call her Christine, it's not out of disrespect. Um, but anyway, I talked to her as needed. Uh, we're both very busy, but we so we don't have a regular meeting where we get together. We used to do school city meetings um, prior to Dr. DeBarge's arrival, um, but we. Uh, have not gotten back into those. So 
we met recently because we wanted to discuss how to, what to do. So when I say we, the city finance director and myself, the chair of the school committee and the superintendent met in the last couple of months uh, to discuss the future of Green River School and what might happen there. That's a school, that's an elementary school that has been vacant for a number of years. I can't recall exactly how long, but quite a few years. And, um, you know, it, it needs a significant, by now, a significant amount of repairs and upgrades. So we need to figure out, as a school system, school district, along with the school committee's help, um, and this is something that we have, can have input into, what, what to do with well, the school. We are talking with Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedergartner. She is, in fact, uh, busily taking care of the schools and public safety and the roads, and in between she is campaigning for re-election. We'll continue our conversation right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Brothers and sisters, yes. The polyrhythmic percussive dance form that uses the body as an instrument. Step Africa, coming to UMass. Step Africa, Thursday, September 28th at the Frederick C. Tillis Performance Hall. Step Africa blends dance styles practiced by historically African-American fraternities and sororities, traditional West African and South African dances, plus contemporary dance forms. Songs, storytelling, humor, audience participation. Step Africa. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Step Africa. Kinetic, percussive, defiantly joyful. Step Africa. Thursday, September 28th at UMass. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Hi, I'm Bob Silman, director of the Young at Heart Chorus. For the first time in 41 years, we're hiring a full-time development director. A successful history in grant writing and fundraising is essential. I can't tell you everything in 30 seconds, so please visit our website, youngatheartchorus.com, for specifics on the position and how to apply. We are committed to the daily practice of diversity, equity, and inclusion. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And it is Mayor Monday, and we are continuing our conversation with Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedergartner. Mayor, you uh, Greenfield was awarded a grant in a very competitive context recently. Can you tell us about that? Yes, it's very exciting. We were awarded a $2.5 million grant Um from the EPA, it's a nationwide competitive grant. We were one of 25 awarded throughout the nation. And what that's, it's, it has an acronym. It's called 
Swiffer, S-W-I-F-R, kind of like those things that you clean up the floor with. That was a commercial. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> 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 I didn't hear it bleak. Anyways, Swiffer stands for the Solid Waste Infrastructure for Recycling Program. And what it will do for us with that $2.5 million, it will um, change our recycling program at the DPW from manually sorted dual-stream recycling collection system to a single-stream, fully automated recycling collection system. Mayor, what does that mean, single-stream? Well, what it means is you don't have to sort your your paper from your plastic from your uh, aluminum from and so forth it can all go into one container so i as a a citizen who recycles i don't have to put it in in different bins uh, according to what what it is i can put it all in one bin then um, what happens is if you're dual stream, of course, it means you have to sort. I, I forget. I think it's paper and then plastic and and other stuff can go in. I'm not, I've never been quite certain about that. I just sort and let them figure it out once they get back to the uh, transfer station. But the really good thing about this is going to allow us to update our fleet entirely. Um, our recycling trucks are so old. I mean, I literally, we keep putting them together with, I don't know what. Uh, I don't want to think about it, but I know they're old. I guess they're, they're going to be recycled. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not sure there's anything there that anybody wants. But, yeah, uh, that whole fleet will get, um, will be uh, upgraded. Well, it'll be replaced, really. And the automated vehicles are double the size of um, our current fleet. So that allows the DPW to double its route efficiency. They'll get more done faster. Uh, and that reduces the need for uh, them to return to the transfer station, um, you know, more many times versus only a few times. Well, uh, congr- also- congratulations. That, that is a, it is an important grant. It isn't, you know, recycling is. these days when we're so concerned about climate uh, yeah. And sustainability recycling is so important. So, is that two and a half million dollars going to be given all at once, or is it over time? It's a three-year grant. So, the first year, this will require a significant amount of public education. And a part of part of the grant is that we will be hiring a grant, uh, not so much a grant manager. I there's one who works for the city who was instrumental in getting this grant. She did a masterful job of writing it. Um, but this person will manage sort of the project itself and be the public education person for that and, and basically for our, our whole um, DPW and the, particularly the uh, people who drive the recycling trucks. So um, that first year will pretty much be a public education and, um, you know, driver education um, program. And then in years oh, two and three, let me think. Basically, years two and three, we will be implementing the, um, along with the promotional campaign and, and so forth. Um, but the, the drivers will all be ready to, 
They'll understand their new trucks. They'll know what they do. They'll know how to use them and so forth. And um, so we will be implementing it. Um, it it's, the- it's really a very good piece of news. And so uh, the, it's, it's an EPA grant, the Environmental Protection Agency. City of Greenfield is one of, uh, what you say, 25 municipalities that are uh, given such a grant. That's it is 25, that's 25 in the nation. 25 in the nation. And if people want to learn more about it, it's Swiffer is S-W-I-F-R. Did I get that right? You are right. That's a solid waste infrastructure for recycling grant. And um, it's really important. And uh, congratulations to Greenfield. Congratulations for you for procuring it. And, Mayor, I am really looking forward to seeing you on October 3rd and um, to the debate. Uh, uh, I should just, by way of disclosure, we did invite Ginny DeSorger, Virginia DeSorger, the Precinct 3 city councilor who also has been chairing the Ways and Means Committee for the city council uh, to appear on this program. She declined. Um, I think she said she was just too busy right now, but um, I do want to thank you, Roxanne Wiedergartner, and um, look forward to that debate. I am looking forward to it, too. So I guess if I don't see you before then, I'll see you next week. See you next week. We're going to be right back. We're going to be talking to um, uh, one of the school committee members from the Amherst Pelham Regional School Committee and the Amherst School Committee about all things Amherst School Committee. We'll be right back. The Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Greenfield man will be arraigned in Northampton District Court today after being arrested Friday night on eight charges following a police pursuit by vehicle and on foot in the Holyoke area. A state trooper had attempted to stop a 2007 Chevy Malibu on I-91 northbound for motor vehicle violations when the suspect took off, dragging the trooper for a short distance. The vehicle was pursued, eventually crashed, and the suspect fled on foot and was located around 5.35 p.m. by a canine unit. 45-year-old Michael Williams of Greenfield is being held without bail for a violation of his probation. East Hampton will be adding four firefighters thanks to a $1.5 million federal grant. The grant funding would cover the $67,000 to $68,000 annual salaries and benefits for all four positions over the next three years. The city expects to hire the additional firefighters by next spring. The Amherst Fire Department is still investigating the cause of a fire that broke out on the fourth floor of the Life Science Laboratories at UMass Friday. Two students were reportedly working on an experiment when a fire broke out, triggering the sprinkler system, which led to water damage in the building, and fire crews sent out a recall for additional resources as they looked for any electrical damage from the water that may have led to further fires. No injuries were reported. And another successful Source to See event is in the books. This past Saturday, almost 200 people showed up to participate in the 20th annual Green River Cleanup Day. Just one of the 128 groups participating in the Connecticut River Conservancy's Source to See Cleanup. For today, rain this morning, the mostly cloudy this afternoon. It'll be breezy, high 62 to 66. Tonight, partly cloudy, overnight lows 46 to 50. And the outlook for Tuesday, partly sunny, highs in the low to mid-60s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. 
It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. I never voyaged so far in all my life. You'll see men you never heard of before, whose names you don't know, going long way down through the meadows with long ducking guns and watertight boots, wading through the meadow grass, looking at ducks, teal, blue wing, green wing, sheldrakes, ospreys, and many other wild and noble sights before night, such as they who sit in parlors never dream of. You shall see rude and sturdy, experienced and wise men, keeping their castles or teeming up their summer's wood, chopping alone in the woods, men fuller of talk and rare adventure in the sun and the wind and chestnut is of meat, who were not only out in 1775 and 1812, but have been out every day of their lives. Greater men than Homer or Chaucer or Shakespeare, only they never got the time to say so. They never took to the way of writing. Look at their fields and imagine what they might write if ever they should put pen to paper. This Thoreau reading is brought to you by the Franklin Land Trust. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to Talk the Talk. We are uh, very fortunate today um, to be uh, able to talk with uh, a person who is... um, Involved in the Amherst School Committee, the Amherst Pelham Regional School Committee. She has been on the school committee. She's completing her first two-year terms of school committee. Members in uh, Amherst Regional uh, District are elected for two-year terms. She'll be running for office November 7th. Uh, There will be five vacancies because all seats are, they come up every two years. Uh, simultaneously, there are seven confirmed um, candidates for five seats, one of which is currently held by Jennifer Shaw. And Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Buzz. Uh, I really appreciate being on your show today. Well, uh, we really appreciate it. This is a story that we have been covering. It's a story that has legs that don't seem to quit walking. And it uh, it became quite newsworthy when in the graphic, the student-run newspaper, there were allegations of bullying and um, intolerance uh, directed at uh, kids who were uh, trans or LGBTQ+. Um, And as a result of that, we've seen uh, changes uh, and resignations in the superintendency. Three of the five school committee members of the regional school district resigned one member, I think, in the uh, uh, Pelham School Committee, uh, resigned, um, and a, just a whole lot of uh, controversy swirling around uh, those issues. So we have all been waiting expectedly for a uh, report um, 
that was to be uh, issued as a result of an investigation into what exactly happened. And we just learned last week that that uh, Title IX um, school report will not be made public. So can you tell us about that, Jennifer? Yeah, so um, that was very uh, surprising and disappointing and upsetting to me to hear at our last regional school committee meeting from the interim superintendent that um, he was basically preparing us for the idea that most or almost all of the Title IX reports content will not be made public. Um, so the, so first of all, um, he's preparing, he was preparing us for what we think is going to coming down the road, but I, I myself am not taking that as the final word. I'm going to keep pushing for transparency and I'm going to keep pushing to release as much information as possible. So it still remains to be seen what's going to be, what's going to happen. My understanding is this. My understanding is that the district is being advised by the district's uh, lawyer, the district's uh, um, attorney, who's the, dis uh, the attorney for the school district and the school committee. The attorney's job is to, quote, protect the district from liability. And that's a phrase I've heard a lot. And, and my interpretation is that that means protect the district from getting sued by one of the respondents in the Title IX report. The respondent is like the person accused of violating Title IX. Uh, that's uh, uh, protect the district from being sued by someone or put us in a position to be able to win a lawsuit if we are sued. So that's the lawyer's job. That's literally his job is to advise us to put us in the best position for protecting the district from, from, from liability. That being said, you know, he's doing his job my job as a school committee member is to serve the public. The school committee is a public body. We are elected by the public. And um, our job is to uh, assure accountability and transparency to the public, you know, as to where public funds are spent and how our public schools are run. And there's been a lot of upset, and rightly so, at what we've heard that has happened at the middle school to these um, LGBTQIA plus students, there's been a lot of demand for answers and accountability and transparency. And th that's what I'm going to be pushing for. So um, I don't know what the future holds, but I'm going to be pressing for having as much information um, made public as possible. I just want to sort of backtread a little bit. And the he that we're talking about, Douglas Slaughter, has been appointed by your school committee to be the acting superintendent while you're doing a national search for a new superintendent in the wake of uh, the resignation of Superintendent Michael Morris, um, who had taken the leave of absence. His uh, position was temporarily filled by uh, Dr. Slaughter, and now um, Dr. Slaughter has stepped in again as superintendent, and uh, when you said he told us that at the school committee member. I think it was Dr. Slaughter who was reporting what the lawyer said. Dan, you, you yeah, have a question? My, my quick question is for you, Jennifer. Um, what's the reason behind not releasing the report? It's a little confusing for a non-lawyer like me. Um, yeah. Can you tell us that? So my understanding, this is my understanding. Um, there are three Title IX reports, three separate reports, and I haven't seen them. But my assumption is that those three separate reports 
are regarding the three counselors who were mentioned in the article in the graphic. So each of the report there, I assume I haven't seen them. But guidance there's one counselors, report you're saying guidance counselors who work for the school. Guidance counselors, sorry, guidance counselors. And so because they they are they name you know they're about specific school staff, the, uh, and staff um, staff that kind of staff information is considered personnel information, and it's it's considered confidential. Um, I think that's the main reason why the why we've been told that the reports can't be released. But my question that I've asked and I will continue to ask is, ask is, let's redact. Redact as much as possible. Redact people's names. Redact identifying information. Redact whatever it needed is needed to keep, to protect people's confidentiality. I don't want to violate any individual staff's confidentiality or, or identity. That's important. But can we redact, redact, redact? and then uh, release as much of the report as possible so that the public and the school committee can can see and read what these reports say about what happened. And I know, Dan, Dan you are, your mouth is on the mic, but I just want to point out for anybody who doesn't know that Title IX is a federal civil rights law uh, for the entire country that prohibits sex-based discrimination in any school or any educational program that receives funding from the federal government. So it is a big deal to question and to have an investigatory report on whether or not there was a violation of Title IX because it's a civil rights law. Dan, I interrupted you. No, I, I well, I'm sorry, I now forgot my question. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but, you know, I, for, for me, it's um, what, how, oh, here it is. Um, what have you heard back when you've brought up the issue about redaction? I mean, who would ultimately make that choice? Is that the lawyers? Is that the school committee? That's a really good question. It's not the lawyer. The lawyer will give advice. It's not the school committee, I don't think, because um, the school committee like doesn't have the ability to, sit, to, to release the report because we don't have the report. I assume it's the superintendent. Got it. I could be wrong, but so th these are, these are, you know, these are issues and topics that we're going to have to discuss. And I did ask the question at the last meeting, like, can we redact as much as possible and release as much as possible? And the answer was no. I, I, I don't know why. I, I don't quite, I, I don't fully understand I, why. There was an answer. I don't fully understand it. And I'm going to keep pushing. And I, I'm going to assume, and, and this buzz, maybe you know this because you're a lawyer here, but I'm going to assume this involves laws in the state of Massachusetts, both at the town maybe level and then also statewide level. Yeah. Right? I mean, I don't know how much you know of this, but. Actually, I know a lot because I'm a town official and because I'm an attorney who's litigated some of these issues. There is a great tension, in, particularly in the arena of uh, public officials, um, uh, between privacy rights that every employee is entitled to, that every person is entitled to, um, in reviewing their performance in the context of their job, and being a public official where the public has a right to know where there should be transparency um, in taxpayer dollars that are funding these jobs that are uh, being discussed, and particularly in the arena of education where you have this added layer of um, in loco parentis status, that is, uh, employees of a school district, whether they're a faculty member, a guidance counselor, or a janitor, they all are interacting with children who um, you want them to both have a, a respect and be subject to structure and uh, etc. And at the same time, we want to know about those situations in which something like Title IX violation is alleged to have occurred. It's a it's a tough line to walk in, and I don't, I don't know how to clarify it more than that 
its attention. And Jennifer Shaw is dealing with it. And I, if I understand what you're saying, Jennifer, is you uh, transparency is important to you. Yeah, for sure. I, I appreciate that tension between protecting individual confidentiality and their identity and, and, and following the laws about what can be released of personnel records versus public accountability and transparency in, in a public school district. So as I said, I don't want anyone's confidentiality or identity to be revealed. Um, but at the same time, the public has a right to know as much as possible what happened. And then the school committee needs to know what happened so that we can then put policies in place to try to prevent something like this from happening in the future. As, one, as my fellow school committee member, Irv Road said, we're flying blind without that information. We, how, how can we ensure and protect students, which is ultimately the job of every school district employee and school committee member. If, if students can't be kept safe, then they can't learn. And our, our, you know, our basic job is to keep students safe. So how can we do the important job of trying to keep students safe without knowing what went wrong and how we can try to prevent it from happening again? And I think school committee member Jennifer Shell, it's particularly important um, I, I, here in Amherst, in the Amherst Pelham Regional School District, because these incidents, which have been investigated, apparently, we assume, and are the subject of the maybe three reports, we assume, have been the headline in every discussion about Amherst schools. Amherst, which has a long history of of having uh, one of the most respected um, school districts, people moved to Amherst so that their kids can, I remember that for years, so that their kids can attend these schools. And now um, there has been great strife created as a result of the graphic report and everything that flowed from there. And um, so the, is it more important? Should that tip the balance and the tension that you and I are both discussing right now because there's so much community involvement and passion about these issues? I, I absolutely think so. The, you know, the strife that you're talking about, there has been a lot of strife in Amherst, but the strife that I'm most concerned with is what happened to students and families. You know, the strife amongst adults and, the, and strife amongst school committee members is secondary to making sure that students are safe and protected. And yes, the public has been demanding to know what happened and what we're going to do to prevent it from happening in the future. And yeah, I do think that's a factor in trying to deal with the tension that you mentioned, the tension between protecting individuals' identity and, and public accountability. Um, and, and I think this is a case where it's warranted to lean a little bit towards public accountability um, because there has been a, a demand from the public and because the public has a right to know um, what happened and then what we're going to do about it. So I, I do think that should tip the scales towards more public transparency and accountability. Well, before we take a break uh, in a couple of minutes, I, I have to ask you, we have had on the show three former school committee members, former because they each resigned and they each resigned because they said that the, uh, they have received such, um, we'll use the word harassment. I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but that's what they, I'm paraphrasing. And um, they have, they feel like some of them feel they were shunned. Some of them feel that there was anger directed at them and so much so that they uh, decided to leave the uh, position which they went into as an act of public service 
they felt underappreciated or unappreciated, or there was downright hostility directed at them. I want to hear your comments as a school committee member who was there at the table with them. Yeah, I, I, I didn't experience any of the public input or comments as harassment. Um, I experienced it as the families of queer students begging for help and begging for accountability and transparency. They were passionate because this is about their kids. This is about keeping their kids safe and keeping their kids alive. I know you talked to Maxine Oland at length about her kiddo and, and all that she and her family and her kiddo went through. The, you know, this is a topic about which people should be angry and people should be passionate. And when I, you know, when people speak and they're angry, and they're, and they're angry at me, I, I don't take that as harassment. That's my job. My job as a school committee member, as an elected official, is to listen to feedback. Sometimes that feedback sounds angry. I, I can deal with that. that. That's my job to deal with that. We ask our queer students to, we don't ask them to, but they do bear a lot of their own harassment at school. That's what this whole case is about, is queer students being harassed and not being protected. We ask them to bear that, to go, to continue going to school through that. And we, and we should try to protect them as best we can. And now you have adults who are, who are receiving, you know, upset emails and upset words from family members of these students and, and they are not able to bear it. I, I, I think that's really important to point out that students have been harassed and they had to continue going to school as best they could. And, and adults were felt they were harassed and they couldn't take it and they had to abandon their post. Um, I, I, I'm, I, I, I am a little amused at the word shunned uh, because I've been shunned for other reasons in my position and it didn't make me, it, you know, I've lost friends for other reasons and it didn't make me want to uh, want to quit. It made me want to keep doing what I'm doing. We are speaking with Amherst Pelham Regional School uh, District committee member and also Amherst school committee member. I keep getting confused about the difference between the two. Um, Jennifer Shaw, and we're going to continue that conversation right after this. the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop.
In 2022, Whole Children moved its campus to Northampton. Continuing the programming we've offered since 2004 for children and teens of all abilities, including developmental and intellectual disabilities, as well as those with autism. After school and Saturday classes for this session run from October 3rd to December 9th. Take a look at the classes we have. Yoga, chorus, cooking, dance movement, and video game. Come take a tour. Wholechildren.org. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation with the Amherst Pelham Regional School uh, Committee member, Jennifer Shaw. She's also a member of the Amherst School Committee, which deals with the elementary schools um, as well. Um, I mean, or specifically, I should say. Uh, Jennifer, you uh, your school committee is going to be engage in a search for a new superintendent. Uh, there is an acting superintendent, Douglas Slaughter, who is um, going to be uh, serving in that capacity during this academic year. But uh, East Hampton is engaged in a national search for a new superintendent. Greenfield is engaged in a national search for a new superintendent because of their retiring superintendent DeBarge. And uh, Amherst is going to be also doing the same. There have been all these issues that we've been talking about, the Title IX issues that arise out of Amherst. Is Amherst going to be competitive in finding a new superintendent? How do you feel about that? I am really excited and energized at the prospect of doing a superintendent search. I'm on the subcommittee that the regional sub, the regional school committee um, put together to um, to start the search. And you mentioned two towns just in western Massachusetts that are doing superintendent searches, but there are towns in eastern Mass and all over the state that are also looking for superintendents. So you're right; it's a it's it, there are going to be quite a few superintendent searches out there. Um, the reason I'm excited and energized is because I'm looking forward to bringing on someone who is experienced, who understands the unique needs of our district, and who who is excited to come here. And we're going to be, you know, we haven't made, we're just at this beginning of deciding what the search is going to look like. I'm going to push for a national search because I think that the pool of candidates in, in Massachusetts is, is relatively small for the number of positions that are going to be open. I'm looking forward to doing a national search to bring in someone who's excited to come here. Um, the, uh, you know, People have asked me, why would a superintendent want to come here with all the drama that's going on? But I will point out that you, know, you mentioned the um, resignations on the school committee. So there are three school, three school committee vacancies, and we're in the process of filling those vacancies. We've had 13 people express letters of interest in filling those three vacancies. And for the school committee, um, the five school committee seats that are going to be up for election in November, we have seven candidates for filling those seats. So, at the, at, you know, people want to come. Pe these are all Amherst residents. People want to be involved. There, there's no shortage of people who are willing to serve on the school committee. So I, I don't see how, I, I don't see that the, the all that's going on in Amherst is going to prevent, it might prevent some people from coming to, to be part of the superintendent search, and that's fine. 
you know, if you don't want to come here, we, we probably don't want you. But I think there are, are going to be experienced, qualified people who are going to see this as an opportunity. And that's who I'm looking to find. Well, it's also, it's a community that houses the university, our, you know, our, our flagship university of Massachusetts, Amherst. It also has Amherst College. And uh, it is a, a really and wonderful Hampshire. place to live. And it's got you, Dan Torres. <laughs> and Hampshire College. That's what I was saying. And Hampshire College as well. So um, it, it is exciting. So uh, last words that you think that the that our listeners really should hear about the La Affair Amherst schools. Um, I want to tell people that I'm going to continue fighting for accountability, transparency, and for doing what's best for our students. I think that's getting a little lost in all of this is, is serving our students and our school community. And I want to encourage the community to keep on giving their input and keep on having their voices heard. And I, I am listening and I know other school community, other current school committee members are also listening. And how do people contact you, Jennifer, in the few seconds we have left? Regional school committee at arps.org. ARPS, Amherst ARPS. Regional. Yeah. <laughs> Amherst Regional Pelham Schools. That's always uh, very interesting. A little dyslexic, but it still works. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer Shaw. Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. Remember, don't just talk the talk. Walk the walk. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were gonna buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. AA made all the difference in my life. I noticed that most of the goals I had as a kid were slipping by. I didn't feel like the person I hoped to be. After all those years of drinking, I, I really didn't know myself. When I was out there drinking, I was always looking for the next great party to make me feel all right. With AA, I found a better way of life. And I feel good in my everyday life, even without a drink in my hand. Alcoholics Anonymous, it works. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. I'm Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. Bill Newman has the day off. Hello, Dan Torres. Hey, Buzz. So uh, we are... Planning to go and get uh, yet another uh, booster. You and my wife, yep. Marcin. Um, and is that uh, the third booster you're getting? I think it's the fourth. It's it, fourth? I think this will be the fourth. I think we got the, the two original shots and then two or three boosters. We've also uh, I'm, I never was up until about three years ago. I never got a flu shot. Mm -hmm. Now I'm getting flu vaccines. I got the the two-stage shingles vaccine. Oh, you did. I think we have to get the RSV vaccine. Um, have you been talking to your doctor about I that? I think I've been not only talking to my doctor, I've been listening to You've my doctor. You've been listening to your doctor. Yes, every time he beats me over the head, I say, okay, I'll be a good boy. Uh, but I am concerned about, uh, 
it, it's not that far in our rearview mirror mm-hmm. to look back and remember the profound impact of COVID-19 and, you know, the, the related sort of uh, uh, morphing uh, microbes <laughs> that viruses that infected Is that the us. official technical term? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, and um, I am concerned that we have, that, that we might be, you know, heading into a sort of resurgence of, of that which just uh, changed everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for most people that the difference now is that we got a lot more vaccines and, and I think people have, uh, also we have the uh, I forgot the Paxlovid, I think is what it's called. When people do get COVID, there's a way to treat the... the thankfully. The, the, thankfully. So there's a way to treat uh, COVID-19, unlike we, we had in the beginning of 2020. So I think we're in a different position. But yeah, it is. There are new strains and there's new variants, I guess, coming through. Um, I don't know. When we, we talk to doctors from Bay State and other people about this, they they seem to give me confidence that things are are at least uh, now more manageable than I think it was for the last two years. That doesn't mean that, you know, what people experienced wasn't traumatic and a lot of people lost uh, families and friends and so. Well, yes, it is not like it was, but we keep hearing reports that perhaps we're heading into a uh, yet another sort of cycle of COVID and its related uh, variants. I, I was just looking this morning at the Boston Globe. I think there's 2,772 new confirmed cases during the past seven days. Um, you know, it, it, that's alarming that we're, we keep getting increasingly more uh, hospitalizations than uh, we have. I think as of, well, let me look. On September 16th, there were 107 patients uh, hospitalized for COVID-19 related il- illness and 357 total patients hospitalized with COVID-19. Those numbers just keep growing. And as winter approaches, uh, the virus gets happier, I think. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, so far there haven't been any official statements by the governor or the mayor regarding to how people should take precaution and things like that. Right. They haven't been putting asking mandates of, of masks Going back to that, so yeah, um, and we we also have two, 29 confirmed deaths reported during the past seven days. Really, twenty nine. Um, but I wonder how big of a spike that is relative to how many people have been infected. You know, it's so. a spike. It, it's a spike. There, mm. um, I, could, I guess there were zero uh, up until a while ago. Very few. Yeah, very yeah. few. And uh, and and we could track that. It's easy to find that mass.gov has a, uh, I forget what the site is called, COVID-19 response or uh, info and all kinds of statistics from the beginning of March of um, whatever it was, March 10th of 2020 and and on. But I remember sitting here in the studio with you. Yeah. You you were always masked. I was for a long time, wasn't I? For for over a year and a half. I think, you know, we were masked and we were careful and we didn't uh, there, there's not enough space here to socially distance ourselves in in the studio that's what it is was but hey i just went to the ashfield film festival mm-hmm. for this weekend a wonderful time on friday night and saturday and the town hall was packed on both occasions people sitting shoulder to shoulder and um there were a lot of masks people mm-hmm. are starting to resume the practice of masking it i see it in supermarkets and mm-hmm. and the like and some people I understand are more vulnerable. They have right. other conditions that 
makes uh, the prospect of contracting the disease, COVID-19 related diseases, um, more frightening because they have underlying conditions that makes them particularly vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing more masks? Yeah, I think everywhere I go now, I'm starting to see at least it pop up more so than two months ago or three months ago. Um, You're an Amherst guy, and you have yeah, but I, I drive mass. around. I go to yeah, I go to UMass, and I also I'm in sometimes I'm in Northampton over the weekend and other places in Hadley, and it's all the supermarkets are in Hadley. It feels like. Um, yeah, I've seen it pop up more and more people are using it. Um, I think it's just people who are following the news and are worried about the recent surge and, or maybe, you know, they have, uh, concerns, lingering concerns that this new variant could be more, um, uh, dangerous to their health. Um, so yeah, it does, uh, I think concern some people and, uh, I'm not surprised that people, some people, especially in this area are wearing masks. We were one of the last ones to no longer be wearing masks, I think. So I'm not surprised that we'd be one of the first ones in probably the state that would bring back the masks, um, especially during this wave of surge. But it seems like, you know, the, the hospital system itself is more prepared than it was. It doesn't mean that people shouldn't take precaution. I'm just saying, I think people are on top of it and have both vaccines and treatments that we didn't have earlier on when you were talking about that beginning part of COVID, um, which was pretty dangerous, I think, for a lot of people because there it's just you get it and you don't know what will happen to you. Now there's at least a process, you know. Of course, for the 29 people across the state, that this doesn't mean anything to them. It's like, hey, they still lost their lives. They could have been vaccinated and still this happened to them. So you never know how this stuff really works. It's so new, right? Science doesn't have a crystal ball that it could predict how these strains will, will come about. I mean, they do their best, but um, it's, it's complicated. It is indeed complicated, and science doesn't have a crystal ball. But I, I also think that, um, you know, you talk about people still being unvaccinated, those people who yeah. are vaccine refusers. Um, and, you know, I'll admit, I, I have, uh, I guess animosity is not quite the word, but I... Uh, I'm very frustrated by people who refuse to recognize the um, uh, necessity of getting vaccinated, the track record of vaccination in eradicating almost diseases, which are now resurgent because some people refused or failed to get vaccinated. Um, I, uh, of, of a generation, a long, long generation, of people who were forced to, if you want to go to school, you get your vaccines because otherwise people are going to contract diseases which you will carry into this congregated um, setting where students sit in classrooms. You uh, uh, are now, you wear two hats these days, Dan Torres. You're not only here as a producer at WHMP, but you also uh, have returned to graduate school mm-hmm. uh, in something called data science. I have no idea what that is. Neither do I, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but you're just sitting shoulder to shoulder at, in a classroom with other people. Yeah. Do you feel vulnerable? Uh, no, because I've been vaccinated uh, multiple times. Um, so, I, you know, so far it's worked for me. I guess I've been, you know, privileged might be the word that people use today, but I feel pretty good about it. You know, I think people are cautious. If they don't feel well, they probably won't go um, to class. So, um, yeah, I think at this point, I'm, I'm a lot less nervous than maybe in 2020, um, you know, or 2021, the beginning of 2021. I mean, it's pretty amazing how quickly the vaccine came out after COVID came out, if you really think about 
mm, the length. It feels no? like, like it took a long time. I mean, it feels I, like I, it I remember, took a long I'm time, sure you too, too. I remember watching the evening news and seeing in New York City that there were trailers full of cadavers that they, they because people were dying at such an incredible rate. I don't have we the, lost two million. I, what, I don't have I don't have the data on this, but I'm saying from a perspective of how long it takes to start a vaccine, do trials, get the trial data published and, and all of those results, and then get that into the arms. I mean, if we can go mention quickly here on the politics of it, it wasn't until Joe Biden took over office that things really began to ramp up in terms of vaccinations and reopening of the economy. We forget, right before he took over, stuff was still closed till the beginning of January of 2021. Things weren't necessarily opening. It was just moving so slow, and the economy had still been closed. The, so, White, the White House was occupied by someone who was himself a vaccine and a mask denier and who came down with COVID-19. And almost died from the books I've read. Yeah, who was seriously ill. Um, and that, that, that person who... Uh, uh, Likely to win the Republican nomination for president. Sorry. Sorry, it can, you just it, it took can, my breath it, away. Uh, I like doing that. I'm having a respiratory moment myself right now. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do, what we should all know is that the Food and Drug Administration has given its approval. And again, we all remember that these approvals are, they come in stages and that there's a uh, sort of interim approval um, that has been granted for the latest um, uh, vaccination, which is, um, really important. You can get that shot at the same time you get a flu shot. They're not incompatible. They don't have to be in the same syringe. You could get two different um, shots, and we just encourage uh, people to do it. Uh, and um, I think that you do it not just to protect yourself. You do it to stop the spread of these dreadful variants that just keep coming. And uh, we're told that this is the new normal. It's going to just keep happening. Uh, the, these variations of this dreadful virus are going to just keep assaulting us um, in years to come. And the best uh, defense that we have against it is just go. It takes no time. It's not painful. You get a vaccine. It's a little shot in your arm. And you're protecting the people that you love and care about. We're going to take a break right now. and We're going to be back right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Power to the people. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3 right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. QC Kinetics can change your life. 
You can live again without that chronic joint pain and without drugs or surgery. QC Kinetics is advanced regenerative medicine. They take your body's own concentrated healing properties and put them right into your aching joints to restore and repair that damaged tissue that's causing all of that horrible pain. The patient satisfaction reports are astonishing. Finally, a real alternative to the old ways of dealing with pain. And unlike surgery, there's no downtime with QC Kinetics treatments. If you have constant pain in your knees, hips, shoulder, or back, you need to call and get a free consultation from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics today. Imagine this fall, moving around pain-free, doing the things you love again, walking, hiking, playing with grandkids. Call QC Kinetics today for lasting relief. Call 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work an active organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. Hey, Dan Torres. There was a doozy of a parade here in uh, in Northampton. There were uh, uh, the parade went down uh, Main Street. It is reported in today's uh, Daily Hampshire Gazette with Dennis Lee heralding the parade down Main Street as one of the you ready grandish <laughs> marshals. <laughs> grandish, <laughs> not I like quite that. grand. It's sort of grandish. Uh, this is the second annual Northampton Mayor, Mayor Neighbors doozy. Doozy Do Parade, um, and Northampton Neighbors uh, is this extraordinary organization that uh, is aimed at, um, well, sort of helping people who are, uh, because of their age or other disability, uh, are able to uh, ask for help from their neighbors, assistance in the activities of daily living, and uh, it's just a, a really fun thing. I mean, yeah. Does, on the one hand, people could say, well, is that really so newsworthy that it belongs on the front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette? And the answer is absolutely. There's nothing that speaks community more than a doozy do parade. I was lucky. I live in Ashfield, which people are probably sick of hearing me say. I'm a proud Ashfield resident. I've never heard that before, ever. <laughs> and I've never seen your nose get quite so long. <laughs> it can't get any longer, buddy. <laughs> You're hitting the microphone with it. Uh, because we had the Ashfield Film Festival, the, the 15th annual um, Ashfield Film Festival. It was extraordinary. It was wonderful. We, um, we, just, we just had a great time. And the most important thing about it is the sense of community that it engenders. Yeah, that's the special thing, I think, about Northampton. They, they've, I think, built up over the years is a sense of uh, neighborhoodness and friendliness and connection. I think one of these parades... Um, kind of connects people to it. It's local, it's small, but it really does come through. And um, you notice it. You kind of, yeah. Northampton has that special bond, I think, across uh, neighborhoods. People really care. So the parade like this, I think, um, you know, keeps people united and it's for a good cause, right? So it's for a great cause. It's about community. 
it, yeah. it, it's to, to not just to celebrate. How many grand marshals did they have? Grandish. Grandish marshals. They had a lot of grandish marshals because there's a lot of grandish people who live around I guess here. That apparently. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are going to take a break, and when we come back, somebody who's who's truly grandish. We're going to be speaking with Professor Michael Clare um, right after these messages. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Greenfield man will be arraigned in Northampton District Court today after being arrested Friday night on eight charges following a police pursuit by vehicle and on foot in the Holyoke area. A state trooper had attempted to stop a 2007 Chevy Malibu on I-91 northbound for motor vehicle violations when the suspect took off, dragging the trooper for a short distance. The vehicle was pursued, eventually crashed, and the suspect fled on foot and was located around 5.35 p.m. by a canine unit. 45-year-old Michael Williams of Greenfield is being held without bail for a violation of his probation. East Hampton will be adding four firefighters thanks to a $1.5 million federal grant. The grant funding would cover the $67,000 to $68,000 annual salaries and benefits for all four positions over the next three years. The city expects to hire the additional firefighters by next spring. The Amherst Fire Department is still investigating the cause of a fire that broke out on the fourth floor of the Life Science Laboratories at UMass Friday. Two students were reportedly working on an experiment when a fire broke out, triggering the sprinkler system, which led to water damage in the building, and fire crews sent out a recall for additional resources as they looked for any electrical damage from the water that may have led to further fires. No injuries were reported. And another successful Source to See event is in the books. This past Saturday, almost 200 people showed up to participate in the 20th annual Green River Cleanup Day. Just one of the 128 groups participating in the Connecticut River Conservancy's Source to See Cleanup. For today, rain this morning, the mostly cloudy this afternoon. It'll be breezy, high 62 to 66. Tonight, partly cloudy, overnight lows 46 to 50. And the outlook for Tuesday, partly sunny, highs in the low to mid-60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Brothers and sisters, yes. The polyrhythmic percussive dance form that uses the body as an instrument. Step Africa, coming to UMass. Step Africa, Thursday, September 28th at the Frederick C. Tillis Performance Hall. Step Africa blends dance styles practiced by historically African-American fraternities and sororities, traditional West African and South African dances, plus contemporary dance forms. Songs, storytelling, humor, audience participation, Step Africa. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Step Africa, kinetic, percussive, defiantly joyful. Step Africa, Thursday, September 28th at UMass. Hi, I'm Jane Wolf, Executive Vice President of Residential Lending, asking you to come on over to the co-op. It just makes sense. And dollars, Jane. I'm Angie McClay, Residential Loan Underwriter, and we want you to know we've extended our mortgage promo, so there's more time to save on your mortgage closing costs. That's right. There's still time to save up to $1,250 when you obtain a pre-approval from GCB. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to help walk you through the process and answer any questions 
questions you may have. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing cost credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by November 30th. Be a new First Mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan. Subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender. Member FDIC. Member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to Talk the Talk, the show where we are just so uh, fortunate to be uh, regularly joined by Professor Michael Clare, the defense correspondent for The Nation, the Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College and all five colleges, and the Senior Fellow at the Arms Control Association in Washington, Welcome, Michael. Uh, pleasure to join you, Buzz. So uh, Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, was here in the United States. He had a three-day visit to the U.S. I think on Thursday he addressed the U.N. General Assembly. Uh, he was here to shore up support from Washington. Was his visit successful? I think it was a mixed report. Uh, I, I think he came uh, to, like you say, shore up support in the West for continued arms deliveries to Ukraine. And he got a full-throated support from President Biden and the Biden administration promising that, you know, we're with you all the way. But in Washington, he met with crosswinds uh, from uh, particularly from the Republican majority in the House of Representatives, where the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, said, you know, we're kind of done with providing aid to Ukraine. And many members of the Republican caucus and the House said uh, also we're not going to vote additional funding for military aid to Ukraine. So I'd have to say there were mixed results uh, from his trip. I am having a hard time understanding the posture of the Republicans in the House of Representatives. That um, Here we have uh, Russia, which during my entire lifetime, uh, formerly the Soviet Union, and then Russia has been the subject of um, grave concern, considered to be our quote-unquote, enemy in the world. The Cold War was all about stopping um, Russia or its predecessor from uh, goose-stepping its way across uh, Europe and other places um, in order to assert its uh, dominance in world politics. And here we have Russia doing exactly that which we feared, exactly that which NATO was created to prevent, um, in the Ukraine, and we have these Republican um, people in the House of Representatives who do not want to support the effort to protect Ukraine from the Russian invasion. Can you explain to us how you see that from your perspective? Well, you know, uh, my, pers my perspective on this would be that of no different from political uh, political analysts. This is not a, a military issue. It's a a political situation where the Republican Party is split between 
what you might call uh, Reagan or Bush Republicans who continue, uh, most of them, to call for strong measures against Russia and, and for continued support for Ukraine, but they're no longer a majority in the party. You have MAGA Republicans, or whatever term we want to use, Trumpists, uh, who uh, are, are not adherents to the traditional Reagan-Bush Republican Party. They, they really represent a new party, a new political force, and we're just coming to deal with that. Uh, nobody's probably more um, but more concerned and more horrified by this than traditional Republicans. So uh, whether to call this a Republican revolt or something entirely new in American politics is hard to say. It, it is, from my perspective, entirely new in American politics. I think we're talking about a few dozen Republicans that have voiced their opposition to sending more weaponry or more support, even humanitarian support, to the Ukraine. President Zelensky is reported to have said to um, both um, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, to have said, if we don't get this aid, this aid being $24 billion in military and humanitarian aid, Ukraine. If we do not get this aid, we will lose this war. Russia will take over Ukraine. Is that accurate as, as an expert as you are in uh, militarism and, and peace, for that matter? Do you think that he's right? Without the aid, Russia wins? Uh, okay, well, two things. Uh, Buzz, first I want to say you said it's a few dozen Republicans in Congress. I, I, I think it's much larger number than that uh, who are ready to uh, call an end to, su to support for Ukraine, mm -hmm. a much larger number than a few dozen. Uh, so the, 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 the fact is the House is un unable to pay us additional aid. And, uh, and I don't, I don't think uh, the money is going to be forthcoming from the House. Uh, I just don't see how that's going to happen. But uh, will that mean that Russia will succeed not in taking over all of Ukraine because Russia doesn't possess that capability? Victory in the sense that uh, Ukraine will be forced at some point to agree to a ceasefire and a, a peace arrangement which keep which allows Russia to keep a fifth of its territory through conquest and get away with it. Uh, yes, that I think is a very real possibility. Uh, Mike Claire, this is Dan. Um, I want to pivot just slightly to the geopolitics in Europe and just to get your perspective on this. Um, Poland, I think just last week, uh, said uh, a lot of things about the importation of, uh, I think it's grains uh, or wheat from Ukraine. They said they wouldn't be importing them anymore. And they said um, that they would stop sending arms, if I remember correctly, to Ukraine. And I'm wondering if you think that the fracturing in Europe is also having a impact here on, on the support for defending Ukraine. Well, I, I don't think the polls said this. they're going to stop sending arms to Ukraine. I don't think that's true at all. Um, there is this issue that um, 
because Ukraine can't export its grain through the Black Sea for the most part, it has relied on shipping grain by rail and truck and barge uh, into Europe for, uh, to, to, to recoup at least some of its agricultural exports. And this has driven Polish and, and other countries' grain off the market. And so this has created internal strife in Poland. And so they've, they've um, banned Polish imports into the country Polish uh, wheat imports into the country. But Poland has been very firm in its support of Ukraine because they feel threatened by Russia as well. And Poland has been uh, among the leaders in in Western Europe pushing for a strong response to the Russian invasion. But yes, uh, there is a growing, uh, I think you could see a growing fatigue, I think would be the right word, in the ever-increasing needs that Ukraine is, is, has for arms, but also for reconstruction. And each day that the war goes on, uh, the, needs, the needs for reconstruction grow because Russia destroys infrastructure every single day with its bombing campaign. It's not using its weapons to fight a war, it's using its weapons to destroy Ukraine. Its infrastructure, its energy systems, sewage systems, electricity, housing, transportation, to try to make it an uneconomic entity. That's, that's Russia's goal, uh, to make Ukraine a non-entity. That's Putin's goal, I should say. Uh, so the cost for the rest of Europe to prop up Ukraine is it will continually rise, and that is a matter of concern for the Europeans, who I I, I think um, are, are are reaching a point where they worry about they'll have funds for their own needs in the future down down the road. So I, I want to follow Dan's question, Professor Michael Clare. Um, President Zelensky uh, appeared at the United Nations while he was here in the United States, in New York, and um, he gave what's been characterized by many as a scathing speech um, to the United Nations for failing to prevent or resolve conflicts like the one that he says is destroying his country, and he called for Russia to be stripped of the veto power as a permanent member of the Security Council. He said, I'm reading a quote right now, Ukrainian soldiers are doing with their blood what the United Nations Security Council should be doing by its vote, he said on Wednesday, according to uh, the New York Times. Um, could you talk to us about that? Okay, well, you know, this is a dispute or a concern that long predates the war in Ukraine. Uh, the, the Security Council was created by Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill and a few others at the end of before the end of World War II, uh, by the victors in World War II, and it was they assumed that after World War II there would be a condominium of the victors, France, the UK, uh, Russia, uh, and China, and and the US. Then the Soviet uh, Union. At that time. And the Soviet Union, yeah. yes. I meant the Soviet Union. I do that all the time. <laughs> and and vice versa, all the time. 
because it, more and more Putin is recreating characteristics of the Soviet Union. Uh, so getting back to the, to, to the uh, UN Security Council, the assumption was that, that uh, those five powers uh, would work in conjunction with one another to maintain world peace. And that when a conflict arose, they would work together and call up UN peacekeeping forces to prevent aggression. But that didn't last beyond 1946 or 1947 when the Cold War broke out. So Russian vetoes, or Soviet vetoes, and Russian vetoes have been a consistent factor in world politics uh, since the beginning of the Cold War. And so there have been calls to reorganize the Security Council for a very long time. This is not new. Uh, it arose during the Korean War. Uh, some, uh, some of us might remember that, most people probably don't. But at that time, the Soviet Union was, uh, was uh, uh, boycotting the Security Council for, you know, for some ideological reason. And so the uh, UN voted to support South Korea uh, to oppose the North Korean invasion. And to this day, it's considered a UN action to maintain the DMZ and so on. Uh, Russia, uh, the Soviet Union, never boycotted the, the Security Council since then, and it's used its veto power. Many countries in the global south believe that this represents, constitutes a, uh, a artifact of, of the 20th century and is unfair not just to countries like Ukraine, but to, to India, which doesn't have the most populous country on earth, doesn't have that power. And many other countries in the global south are outraged by this perpetuation. You know, France and Germany were once great powers, but they certainly, France and the UK were once great powers, but they, why should they have a veto power when India, Brazil, South Africa uh, don't. So, so Zelensky's remarks are certainly um, understandable, but but they don't represent a new complaint. As a professor who's an expert on geopolitical uh, uh, relations, uh, a lot of people in the United States are concerned when we talk about restructuring the U.S. UN Charter and eliminating the Security Council, which many people believe should be done for exactly the reasons you are talking about. But they're concerned that the United States, even if it is because of our own U.S. hegemony or uh, imperialism or an animus towards the United States, that if it, if it was, if we were to eliminate the Security Council and just rely on the uh, the general assembly that the u.s would be losing um its uh preferred course of action that the u.n engages in and thus the u.s is very protective of having the veto power that the security council provides it regardless of who its other colleagues are in the security council what do you say about that well i i say that if the u.n 
is to have legitimacy in the 21st century, it has to reform. Uh, it, 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 you can't have countries like France and the UK with a ever diminishing share of the global economy and the world population having power over rising countries like India, Brazil and Indonesia and South Africa. Uh, that's that's increasingly will be viewed as illegitimate. And we've seen it just in the past few months at the meeting of the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, um, China, and South Africa, a call from, from the rising powers for new modes of governance. So uh, if the UN doesn't change, then other forms of governance are gonna arise and US power will diminish one way or the other. So there has to be some change in global institutions. It'll come one way or another. And I think the war in Ukraine, more than anything else, has brought this struggle or, or, or this, this struggle, yeah, to, to the fore. It's made very clear, uh, more than anything else has in recent time, that uh, the old modes of global governance have to change because the war has caused uh, uh, intense hardship to people in Ukraine, of course, but it's also caused hardship to people in Africa and the Middle East and in Asia because of rising food and energy prices. And they have a stake in the war that's completely separate. And, and they're demanding those countries and those peoples are demanding a say in the outcome. We are <clears throat> talking to Professor Michael Clare, who is a professor of world security studies um, at the five colleges and a senior fellow at the Arms Control Association in D.C. We're going to continue our conversation right after this. on and take a walk with me through this green and growing land walk through the meadows and the mountains and the sand walk through the valleys and the rivers and the plains walk through the sun and walk through the rain here is a land full of power and glory beauty that words cannot recall you're listening to talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg For complete contest rules for WHMP, please visit WHMP's website at whmp.com and click on the Contest and Rules tab. Jazz abounds downtown this weekend. The Northampton Jazz Festival, celebrating Max Roach with the Max Roach Centennial Concert this Saturday at the Academy of Music. The Northampton Jazz Festival, kicking off this Friday with the Jazz Strut. Free performances at seven breweries, bars, and restaurants downtown. The Strut starts at 4.30 in Pulaski Park with the Jeff Holmes Big Band. Saturday morning, the festival gets going at 11 in Pulaski Park as the expandable brass band leads a jazz parade through downtown. Ten free shows around town, including the return of Matthew Fat Cat Rivera spinning rare jazz 78s in the park. Saturday evening, the festival climax. The Max Roach Centennial Concert at the Academy of Music. 
an all-star band led by South Hadley-born Roach disciple Joe Farnsworth with George Coleman and Christian Sands. Get complete details at NorthamptonJazzFest.org. Jazz abounds downtown this weekend, the Northampton Jazz Festival. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Using WIC is easier than ever. You can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. Visit us at mass.gov slash WIC, brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we're continuing our conversation with Professor Michael Clare, who is a defense correspondent for the nation. And uh, Professor Clare, what would create conditions for peace in these, this war between Russia and Ukraine? So uh, it seems to me that you have to have both sides, that is Russia and Ukraine, reach a point where they believe that further military action would be pointless. And we're not there yet. Uh, the Ukrainians clearly believe that further military action is to their advantage. And, the, and Putin clearly believes that uh, to, to uh, stop now would be to his disadvantage. So both sides uh, see an advantage and continue fighting. So uh, e either they both have to reach a point where uh, they see no further benefit in, in continuing the fighting or outside forces uh, tell them that uh, we have a better offer for you, that if you stop, we'll provide you with various incentives uh, to stop or disincentives to stop uh, as the matter goes. But uh, the leaders you have to persuade two people, Vladimir Putin and Vladimir Zelensky, and they are they're they're prepared to keep fighting. So you, you really have to t persuade them that there are benefits to stop. And I don't I don't see anywhere on the horizon that uh, we're at that point. I could discuss what I think what those what those benefits might be, but uh, right now uh, th they're not evident. I do want to talk about what those benefits might be, but I also want to talk about uh, the fact that long-range missiles and drones are creating a different kind of warfare than we saw earlier in this war. Could you uh, tell us about that? Well, actually, uh, you know, Russia has been attacking uh, deep into Ukraine with cruise missiles and hypersonic missiles and aircraft launched missiles and attacking Ukrainian cities since the very beginning of the war, uh, attacking uh, Lviv, which, Lviv, which is far, far in Western Ukraine uh, with from the very beginning of the war. And Ukraine was unable uh, until recently to reciprocate 
and to bring the war to Russia or to uh, Crimea, which is in a very critical base of operations for the Russians. Now they seem to be in the process or have succeeded in developing long range drone weapons of their own, air drones and naval drones that allow them to strike as far as Moscow on several occasions and increasingly in Crimea, attacking key naval facilities in Sevastopol, the, the headquarters of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. And this, I think, does represent a change in the dynamics, especially if, if, if Ukraine could step up those attacks because it's bringing the war back to, uh, to, to, uh, to the Russian population, which hasn't until now uh, experienced the war, other than through the draft, which is, uh, or military mobilization, which is part of this long-term discussion that we could have. Well, I have read about visits to Russia by North Korea um, and uh, and China and overtures to China, uh, both of which are aimed, according to reports that I've read, um, at providing Russia with new armaments and new capacity to continue its war with Ukraine. Is that true? Well, there's no doubt that the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, did visit uh, Eastern Russia last week, met with Vladimir Putin, and they had closed doors discussion. So we, we don't know exactly what was said. The assumption is that Putin wants something from Kim, uh, it, that basic artillery shells is what he needs more than anything else, ammunition and that uh, Kim needs, uh, wants from Russia technology to uh, enhance his ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons technology. What kind of deal they struck is as yet unknown. Uh, you know, it's possible the CIA has some intelligence they're not sharing, but uh, I certainly don't know what deal was struck. Uh, I, I, I suspect something was agreed to in my mind, this is a sign of desperation. If Putin has to go to North Korea for ammunition, it means he's having trouble producing it at home and getting it from anybody else. Uh, so I don't. This is not a good sign for Putin. When we talk about and, changing world uh, geopolitically, it's rather astonishing to me that North Korea, which we always thought of this small little enclave of of uh, oppressive regime. Uh, is being approached by Russia, which we always thought of as one of the two superpowers militarily in the world, to get ammunition. That just blows my mind. Is it uh, is North Korea really that prolific in its production of such things? Who knows when these were these things were produced? You, you know, they could have been produced during the Soviet era when uh, North Korea was was really within the Soviet uh, uh, orbit. Uh, the, these are old Soviet era style ammunition for Soviet era guns. So they could have been produced a long time ago or certainly being produced in factories that were built by the Soviets way back when. These are not modern 
European class, NATO class ammunition from modern factories. And what Michael Clare, a lot of us are just confused by the relationship between China and Russia and what it might portend. What is that relationship and what's the truth about the extent to which they are allies in this uh, attack on Ukraine? Okay, well, that's really the important question, Buzz, and we have to separate out. They're not allies in Ukraine. They are allies in trying to offset the power of the West, especially the United States. China and Russia together uh, with North Korea and Iran uh, want to uh, create an alternative uh, centers of power to counter the rise of the West or, or the power of the West, maybe not the rise, but to counter the accumulation of power held by the US and its allies. So they're allied in that sense. Uh, and China would prefer to see that Russia not, not lose the war in Ukraine. On the other hand, it doesn't want to be viewed as helping Russia win. win because uh, for China right now, its biggest issue is its, its failing, falling economic capacity. Uh, China is experiencing some really hard times economically, and it must be able to trade with Europe, its major economic partner in so many ways. And the Europeans are becoming increasingly uh, irritated with China's support for Russia. So China can go only so far in helping Russia. It can't provide arms. If it did so, uh, it will lose its markets in Europe, and that would be devastating to its economy. So, like I say, China allied with Russia in fending off the West, but not in the war in Ukraine. In your opinion, Professor Michael Clare, is there anything the U.S. should be doing that it is not doing uh, in terms of uh, dampening this aggression against Ukraine? Oh, that's a good question. And, you know, there, we, we struggle with that. If it was me, I would be so much less hostile and aggressive towards China. Uh, the Biden administration has taken an extremely harsh stance towards China building up military alliances with Australia, South Korea, Japan, uh, arming Taiwan to the teeth, uh, doing things that uh, are uh, highly threatening and aggravating to China, which makes it very difficult to cooperate with China. So if it was me, I, I would be taking a much less hostile stance towards China and trying to work with China to uh, to wean it away from its alliance with Moscow and 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 try to get uh, China to turn the screws on Putin to uh, to uh, to end the fighting and to come to a conclusion to to a peace peaceful settlement of the war. In in the uh, half a minute that we have left, it is. Do you see that happening? Is that a possibility that the U.S. changes its approach with China? I don't see it happening. I really fault the Biden administration for this Cold War-ish hardline stance towards China. Uh, but bear in mind the, 
the Republicans in the Senate and in the House are even crazier than the Biden administration on this. Uh, and, and so we really have to push for a more uh, reasonable stance on China. We are always so fortunate that we have Michael Clare explaining that, which is so incomprehensible to the rest of us. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Listeners, thank you for joining us today. Remember, like Michael Clare, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com. WHMP, Northampton.